if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. That's where we're going to be uh, picking it up here this morning. We're in Daniel chapter 8, continuing our series with this Old Testament prophet, just continuing to see how, honestly, one of the things that stands out to me has just been how relevant the Bible is to our world today. Like, continue to see how God makes himself known to his people through his word for his glory and, and also for our good. And Daniel 8 is no different. So, so that's the approach we're coming to it with this morning, that God has something to tell us this morning about who he is uh, for our good and for, for his glory. Uh, we come to it in faith. We come to it, that's that faith is hopeful anticipation of God meeting us here and speaking to us in his word. So if you would, would you stand with me as we look together, as we seek the Lord together on this journey as his people, uh, in his place and in his time. This is Daniel 8. We're going to start in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I saw at the Ulai Canal, And I was at the Ulai Canal, sorry. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come in here week after week. carrying all sorts of things in our heart, carrying distractions in our mind, carrying temptations, carrying plans, carrying carrying all sorts of other things that would distract us from from hearing you speak this morning. So as we come to this, another passage um, that can be hard to understand, Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that you would help us to hear you this morning. And so we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we jump in this, uh, into this chapter together, we come to another vision. And, and like the vision before it, some of the imagery, and we're just being honest, right? We, that's one of the things, we, we're just going to be honest. Some of the imagery here is, it's really weird. Um, last Sunday night, as we were sort of settling in, we'd had our community group. Everybody had gone from there. We were kind of just kind of settling in for the night. I got a message from a parent of one of our uh, Rivercrest kids, and it was it was just a picture that they had taken of a picture that their child had 
drawn. And the picture was this pretty amazing depiction of the beast that we read about in chapter 7. It was, it was awesome. And I, I, here's what I think. I think that child really captured... But here's, here, here's another thing. Here's a reason it's important to have space for our kids to draw out what they're hearing about. I, like, I, I know sometimes it can be like, no, they're supposed to just sit there and listen. No, no. We literally have a place in their little worship guide, their little sermon notes page for them to draw out. Because what she captured... Uh, was one of the fundamental realities of life in this world. Like in her depiction with all the beasts and all the details, all the horns and the little horns, all that sort of stuff, all that sort of madness that is that scene in Daniel chapter 7, what she did was she captured the chaos of this fallen, broken world. And in doing so, what she's capturing, right, what she's learning, what she's demonstrating in that at a really early age, is this fundamental truth that, that since the world is fallen, fractured, and really unhinged, at least from our perspective, there's no reason for us to place our confidence in, to place our faith in, or our hope in the things of this world. Like They're all doomed to fail us. And that's surely part of what the Lord is trying to teach us in, in Daniel. Because chapter 8 brings us right back to that. All right? It's really the chorus of each chapter, just God coming to us. And, and when he does these things, when God comes to us repeatedly with something, I, I can't help but envision him as, as like a father who's, who's desperately trying to teach his kids the basic, the basic principles of life. Like, like I still remember like with, with our kids like going, no, you have to look both ways before you cross the street. And, and then every once in a while, and this, it seemed like we were always teaching this lesson at Target, which probably says a lot about our family, but whatever. And so we're at Target and little guys just like running out and we're like, look, that's, that, that car will kill you. Like that's it. It doesn't want to necessarily, but it will do that to you. And so we need to like hold his hand and look that way and look that way and then look that way again because we want to be overkill on this, right? And so we teach them over and over again, just kind of come back to that. That's how God is coming to us, like in his kindness and in his mercy, he's warning us about the dangers of the environment in which we find ourselves. And, and because he loves us, here's the good news for us, because he loves us, he's willing to repeat himself. He's willing to press this truth into our hearts because, here, because he knows us, right? He, he knows us. He knows, how, he knows that we're often slow to learn and quick to forget. Remember what it says in Jeremiah 1, uh, Jeremiah 1, 5. By the way, Jeremiah is a contemporary of, of Daniel. God told his people through Jeremiah, he said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. So not only did God know you when he says he consecrated you, that God not only formed you and he didn't, he didn't just know you, but he also purposed you for something. He purposed you for something in this life. And then there's uh, Psalm 139. There's this confession of David <clears throat> where he says this. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, right? That's an intimate, like you don't knit by just going be there. Like knitting is hand work. I mean, I can't knit. I keep doing this as if I know, I don't know how to knit anything, but I think in my mind, you do it like this. And so that's God, like being intimate with you, like hands on in your life. Uh, in Luke 12, 7, Jesus says that even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And so like this is thematic in scripture, right? 
It's the witness of the Bible, not just that God knows the realities of this impersonal world around us, but that in the most intimate and personable way possible, God knows us. Like God knows you. And so we can't miss, here, here's what we can't miss as we jump into this. We cannot miss the importance of verse 1. Remember the last vision in chapter 7. That was in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And now this one is in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So while it's only, like it's genuinely just a line in our Bibles, right? The reality is that the gap between 728 and 81 is about two years in the life of a real man named Daniel. The last vision was sort of this picture of ultimate reality. It was this answer to that big question of how does it all end? And by end, we're talking about the very end of the road when Jesus comes back in, in that very uh, Daniel 5, 27 way, right? That the that evil is weighed and it's measured and they're found wanting. And then the Son of Man is given dominion. That's the language there. And it's an everlasting dominion that, that unlike unlike that of the four beasts, shall not pass away. That's the dominion of Christ. So that's the answer to how it all ends. And, that's, and that should be comforting for us to know. It's the ultimate answer to that great question of how does it all end? Well, this vision involves a more immediate outlook. It deals with a, a more immediate context. And we see that in the interpretation. So what I want you to do is jump forward with me to verse 15. We're going to look at verse, a few verses here in verse 15. Here's what it says. It says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. So pause right there for just a second. Daniel's a prophet, right? He's got a book in the Old Testament named after him. So if you hear about a ram with horns and a goat that's running across the earth but not touching the earth, and your mind kind of goes, what? So did Daniel, right? Verse 15 says that Daniel is sitting in the same seat as you. He's going, I see it, but hmm. Uh, so here we go. I, I had seen the vision. I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. I, sorry, pause one more time. Sorry. He, 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 he passed out. Like the, the, Gabriel comes to him, tries to comfort him, and it doesn't help. That's what you need. Like he comes to him and he's like, I'm going to explain this to you. And his response is like, cool. Yeah, let's let me get my notepad and start journaling this thing. He literally falls down with his face on the ground, passes out. Gabriel has to pick him back up. All right. So that's, if you're, if you're getting overwhelmed by these visions, again, Daniel is there with you. Daniel gives me great hope for where I'm at actually in life. Um, but here, here we go. When he had spoken to me, I fell into deep sleep, faces on the ground, but he touched me, made me to stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. 
All right, so, so, so unlike the first vision, right, this, this one has a pretty clear interpretation. We're actually given, we're given names, or at least we're given areas that they come from. And we, and we have the benefit of, like you and I actually do have the benefit of a vantage point now looking back on history that was the future for Daniel. And so we can recognize that what God said would happen is, is, not, a, is not a matter of convenience, but it's actually a matter of providence. Now, providence, here, here's, here's what that is. It's his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And no, I didn't make that up. That comes from our shorter catechism. So there's your, there's your reason to be catechizing. What is providence? It's his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. That's what providence is. And we, from our vantage point in our place in the timeline of history, see that accuracy on display right here. The ram with the two horns is the kings of Media and Persia, with Persia being the second horn that grew much larger. And that ram of verse 4 represents almost 200 years. So it's just a verse in our Bible, but it's about 200 years of history. So there's a lot going on in this vision. The goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes, the first king, is the man who we will later call Alexander the Great. He's the one who trampled over the Persian Empire. It took him just over three years to conquer that empire. I mean, like by the age of 33, he had conquered virtually all of the known civilization of the world. But then, like all men, Alexander died in 323 BC. So there's your actual timeline. The point of this is what's becoming clear again is, is that it doesn't matter how strong or how powerful any earthly king or kingdom may become, Ultimately, they all fade away. I like the way Ian, uh, Ian Duguid has, has said this. He said, No matter how great and menacing an empire may appear to be, it is simply an actor in a play written by someone else. It plays the role assigned to it by God on the revolving stage of world history, and then, when its lines are over, it slinks off into the wings. This is the idea. Even someone like an Alexander the Great is ultimately just a bit player in God's grand redemptive story. We find it hard to believe, but these empires of the world that seem so strong, that seem so powerful in our eyes, the powers of the world, like the powers of the world that actually make us tremble. And maybe it's not politics or empire building that really stirs up the fear in our hearts. It's probably not for most of us here in the United States. We're sort of insulated from that. But there are all sorts of things in our world that seem like impenetrable forces. Like maybe it's a health situation. And we've walked through a bunch of that here, even in this church. People who have a diagnosis that seems helpless, and we've watched God work in and through that. Maybe it's a broken marriage. Maybe it's a troubled, wayward son who you just cannot get. Who you just cannot get to walk in line with what God would have him do. Maybe it's some unrelenting, sinful desire in your own heart. Whatever the Goliath is, right? Like whatever the Goliath is that's standing on the hill, kind of waving at you and laughing at you, whatever that undefeatable, unconquerable battle is, what Daniel 8 is making clear is that there is a God who put it there, and there is a God who can take it away. Now we got to look at verse 22. Look at 22 again. It says, as for the horn that was broken, that's that weird unicorn-looking goat's horn. That, that's Alexander again, all right? Uh, as for that horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face 
One who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. In terms of history, we're, we're looking at what would be, um, be the rise and fall of Alexander the Great. The division of his empire into four smaller kingdoms. You can Wikipedia that if you're interested in it. They divided the kingdom amongst four generals, all who battled one, one another for supremacy. And, and one branch of that fractured empire is, is the kingdom of the Seleucids. All right? and, and out of there, this is one of, the, one of the four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Verse 9 tells us that out of one of them came a little horn. That little horn, and biblical scholars are pretty uniform in agreement on this, is a Seleucid king called Antiochus IV. And he's going to reign from 175 to 163 BC. This is the king of bold face. That's who he is, Antiochus IV, that we met in verse 23. And he would severely persecute the people of God. Now, there are legends about this, and there's true history about this. He wasn't indifferent to the people of God. He wasn't one of those kings who was willing to tolerate them. He hated them. He hated them. He, he would have hated us, and he, and he hated the Lord. So here's what he did. He, he banned circumcision, which was their sign of the covenant. He, he brought an end to the sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. He did that in 167 BC. He defiled the altar of the temple there by, by offering a pig on that offer, and then by placing pagan articles in the Holy of Holies, By the way, that was December of 167. Most legends tell you it was December 25th of 167. So you can remember that every Christmas. He burned copies of Scripture. And he executed, he murdered God's people for actively following the law of God. In short, all right, Antiochus is a type of Antichrist. And he wasn't content just to, just to rage against God's people. I mean, that would have been one thing, but he wasn't content with that. He actually went after God himself. Uh, verse 25 says that he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. This is Christ himself. Antiochus gave himself the title Epiphanes, which is a pretty bold move. It, it, that, means God, <laughs> that means God manifest. So he said, my name is Antiochus, God manifest. This vision for Daniel is a picture for us of the cosmic struggle of evil against good, of, of darkness against light, of hell against heaven. And so he fulfills, Antiochus fulfills all these descriptions of the little horn. He achieved power, he achieved status, he coronated himself as the king of the world, and he actually gave himself the title of God. But look there at the end of verse 25. Just look at 25 with me real quick. After all of this, it says, And he shall rise up against the prince of princes. And what's the next line? You don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to see it. What's the next line? It says, And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. He conquered the world. He seems to be in control. He picks a fight with God. And look what it says there. It says, And he shall be broken. That's what it says. And he's going to reach the pinnacle of human power. He's going to stand on the apex of human strength and control. He's going to weaponize fear and intimidation. He's going to claim to be God. And after it's all said and done, he 
shall be broken. One of the biggest mistakes that we make is to fall into the quasi-Greek mythology when we consider the spiritual battle. So many of us fall into this, actually. We fall into this idea that what's happening in the cosmos is actually a battle between good and evil. That there's a battle raging between light and dark. There's a fight actually there between heaven and hell. We fall into this and this sort of Zeus and Apollos and, and all the different gods of, of Greek mythology, right? And there's sort of this idea they're all evenly matched. But that's not the picture the Bible paints for us. You see, there's no battle. It's just what? He shall be broken. Like It's really important that we see that. Because if we fail to see what's happening right here at the end of verse 25, we will fail to understand Daniel chapter 8. And we want to understand Daniel 8. I do. I want, not just because it's the word of God, but because it's intensely relevant for us today as the people of God. I love the way Eugene Peterson has reworded this. If you have like the message Bible, um, it's basically his commentary on the Bible. He rephrases this. He sort of summarizes this by saying it. Here's, here's his version. He'll think he's invincible and get rid of anyone who gets in his way. But when he takes on the prince of all princes, he'll be smashed to bits, but not by human hands. Here's what happened to Antiochus. I'm, I'm boiling this history down as fast as I can, I promise you. Here's what happens to him. While he's still in power, Antiochus is riding along, coming from a victory. He falls out of his chariot and ultimately died. He wasn't shot out of the chariot. He wasn't thrown out of the chariot. Our boy was in peak physical condition and just straight up fell out of the chariot and was truly broken. That was in 164 BC. Now here's why this is important. I, we've basically done a history lesson so far, right? Everybody agrees? You're like, I feel like I'm in a lecture. I'm, I apologize for that. Um, here's why this is important. It's important because it reminds us that there is a spiritual dimension to all human struggle. Every bit of it. There is a spiritual dimension to all human struggle. And this is easy for us to forget. Like it's especially easy for us to forget when we live in the sort of everyday comfort that many of us enjoy. All right, if we could just be honest, I'm not coming down on anybody. I'm not talking about the car you drive, I'm not talking about the house you live. I'm talking about just comfort in general that we enjoy as people living in the West today. Someone I read this week makes the point that if we have a pleasant situation in life with a comfortable house, a tra attractive spouse, beautiful children, a fulfilling career, and a generous retirement package, we are unlikely to cry out, How long, O Lord? And that's just the reality. Like when everything's tracking our way, we're not, God, when are you going to get us out of this mess? Like my wife's beautiful, my kids are healthy. But when all that blows up, listen, it's almost always the case that material abundance leads to spiritual apathy. Like when we're comfortable, here's what happens. When we're comfortable, we get complacent. We're comfortable, we get complacent. When we get complacent, it's easy to drift over into apathy because it's when we're comfortable that we stop paying attention. Like one of the enemy's greatest tactics against you, because he hates you. Just like Antiochus hated the Jews, the enemy today hates you. And so one of his greatest tactics against you is just to get you to stop paying attention to your own soul. This is one of the reasons so many of us have such superficial and often non-existent prayer lives. It's because we don't think we need any help. Because we've got it covered. Because we can handle it. I, here's, let, me, let me do, I had the kids confess. It's only a right that I confess. 
I didn't stay up late last night reading. All right, here's my confession. In my life, when I'm not praying, when I'm not laying my life daily down before the Lord, seeking His will for my life, seeking His grace for my sin, seeking His protection for my own heart, it doesn't take very long for me to drift over into spiritual apathy. Here's what it's like. Here, I don't, and maybe this will make sense. Maybe it won't. I'm, 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 I'm going for it. All right. It's, here's what it reminds me. It, remi- it reminds me of these new cars today. All right. I was driving uh, someone's new car. The other day she'll remain nameless for anonymity or whatever. It was great. All right. I don't know if you ever get to drive like a brand new car. It's just amazing. Okay. You get into them and they just smell like they smell so good. Like if you could bottle that, and I know, and listen, I'm not talking about the little tree thing that hangs in your thing that says new car scent, because that is not what it smells like. I'm talking about that real new car scent. That's what it was. So like sitting in like this heavenly smell, I'm talking, and like that not, and it goes away. After like 5,000 miles, it's gone. That smell vanishes. And if you got kids, it's like 300 miles, bro. And it is gone. Like on the way home, they dump Cheerios on the floor and it's just honey nut in there for the rest of, the, of its existence. Anyway, as I was driving here, I'm driving this new car. I don't know why I'm telling you all this story, but I think it's good. As we're driving down the road, I sort of like, because there's all this tech in it, which is so cool. Like it connects to your phone and there's a huge screen and your phone. This wasn't a Tesla, by the way. All right, so we'll get to that. This was just a simple car. And so we're driving down the road. I, I, I get a little distracted by just all the wow factor in there. It's got a sunroof that goes all the way back to the end. It's just amazing. And so I drifted a little bit, you know, in someone else's car, which is not the, make, uh, the move to make anyway. And, and here's what happened. I promise you I'm not making this up. I drifted over towards the middle and the car fussed at me. <laughs> like a robot. Fussed at me, right? And then here's the next thing. It fussed at me, bing, 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 shook the steering wheel, and then drove me back to the middle of the lane. Some of y'all are like, yeah, my car does that. Well, good for you. All right? <laughs> my Toyota doesn't do that. All right? So here's, here's where I'm at in life. Um, <laughs> I was blown away by this. Um, and, and people have... My family has made a lot of fun of me over this. Fred has given me fits about this. It's okay. Um, But self-driving Kias are now a thing. Like that exists in the world, a self-driving car. And I'm just, be honest, I'm not sure I belong in a world where the Kia drives itself. But Because here's what's going to happen. Let me tell you, here's what's going to happen. I'm just sounding like the oldest man in the room right now. Here, let me tell you kids what's about to happen. I'm going to get on the interstate. I'm going to put that thing in cruise control. It's going to keep me a satellite in space, 36,000 miles above the earth is going to be watching me. It's going to keep me 100 yards from the next car in front of me. And then if, for whatever reason, I drift over, it's going to just bring me right back. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to realize pretty soon that I don't really matter in that car. Like, what am I even here for? And so it's just driving itself, and I'm just, you know, going to doze off. Because I'm just going to put it on cruise, and cruise control is genuinely going to become cruise control. The car takes control. But here's, here's the problem with this. You're never more than one little missed button away from turning that whole system off, and now I'm going to crash and die. Because I'm going to think, self-driving Kia. No, you hit the little silver button that turned it off. 
and now we're dead. It's my warning to all y'all with self-driving cars. Y'all be be careful with that junk. I'm going to get complacent. I'm going to stop paying attention to what's coming. That's, that, that will happen. And I'm telling you, Elon Musk, he ain't going to pay that bill for you, okay? You better be paying attention. I'm going to stop. I'm going to think everything under, is under control and I'm going to crash. All I will ever ask of you as a disciple of Jesus Christ at Rivercrest, as we walk together on this pilgrim journey together, is that you pay attention to the world around you. Pay attention to your own soul. In 1 Peter 5, we are told, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Some of us in our comfort have forgotten our dependence on the Lord for everything in this life. And so here's what 1 Peter uh, 5, 8 says. Here's the challenge to us. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. And then he says this, your, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I don't know if you consider me your pastor. If you're visiting here, maybe we're not there yet. But if you're a member of the church, my greatest fear in life is that you're going to stop paying attention and get devoured by the roaring lion. That, that is the prayer that wakes me up at night right there because he is sneaky. He's prowling. He wants to catch you when you are napping. He wants to devour you. So we have to remember that there is a spiritual dimension to all human struggle. And here's another thing. We have to remember to live as though God is in control. And some might wonder why if God is in control, like as Daniel keeps making so clear, if, if God is so in control, why, does, why do things still seem to be such a mess? I had somebody ask me that question recently. Why, if God is making all things new, why, is it, why doesn't he just get on with it? That was the question. If God's making all things new, why doesn't he just get on with it? And that's a real question, but, the, but that question assumes a perspective that does not belong to us. It puts us, that's what that question does. It puts us in the, in the position of Antiochus Epiphany. It assumes that we know better how things are supposed to go acting as though we are in control. As crazy as it might be, Daniel's vision is looking forward to a time. Here, here, It's actually looking forward to a time when Israel has been set free from captivity. They've returned to the promised land. The temple has been restored. Nehemiah and Ezra are going are to be calling the people back to the Lord. The worship of God is going to be open and free. And yet, it's their sin. It's their transgression that's there in verse 12. That's what we were talking about. It's their transgression. We're not talking about Antiochus' transgression. We're talking about the people of God's transgression. Our spiritual apathy flowing out of that that brings the judgment that we're reading about right here in Daniel 8. Antiochus didn't spring up out of nowhere. He was sent. And so we need to learn to live by faith, both in the storms of life and when the seas of life are calm and still, following God through this wilderness each and every day, whether that's on the clear mountaintop or like we see in this vision down in the shadow valley. It's recognizing that if we are still here, here's what it is. If you are still here, if you are still alive, God has called us to live for him with each new morning. We are here to do the king's business. We are here to live and walk in holiness as the light of the world. There's a, there's a story about John Wesley. This is from back in the 18th century. 
where he was stopped by a stranger and he was asked, he was asked, he was like, what would you do? All right, you can think about this. What would you do if you knew Christ was going to return at noon the next day? That was the question posed by this stranger, which is kind of a bold question to ask if you're a stranger, but whatever. What would you do if you knew Christ was going to return at noon the next day? And here's what John Wesley did. He reached into his saddlebag because he was riding around on a horse from town to town preaching. He reached into his saddlebag and he pulled out his agenda and he read the list of appointments that he had for the rest of that day and the next morning. So, hey, I'm meeting with I'm meeting with Andrew at that time. I'm meeting with Laurie at that time. And he just went through his list of engagements he had and he responded to the guys. So after he read the list, he goes, that, dear sir, is what I would do. That's the picture we see of Daniel in verse 27. It says, And I, Daniel, was overcome. He's fainted. Gabriel's picked him back up. He's still overcome. And I lay sick for some days. This vision made him physically ill. It says, Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Sinclair Ferguson says that his knowledge of the Lord's future kingdom allowed him to live already for that kingdom. That was the spirit of Daniel. What would you do if Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Hopefully you're already doing it. You're already walking in the calling that he has for your life. Whether you're doing air conditioning work, whether you're teaching, whether you're a full-time student, whether you're a little child, whatever you're doing right now, you're being to live for Christ, you being to live for his kingdom, doing the king's work today, so that when he says, hey, I'm coming back tomorrow, you go, good, I'll meet you there. I got these three appointments already lined up for you. That's the ultimate purpose here, right? In this way, Daniel points us to Jesus. Now, that's the goal of every sermon. I don't know if you know that. You should, hopefully. If you've been here long enough, hopefully you know that. Eventually, we're going, how does Daniel point us to Jesus? If you read our questions for our community groups that are in every single worship guide, one of them in there is going, what is God kind of form in us to make us more like Christ? How does this passage point us to Jesus? Like the Greeks in John 12, our ultimate desire every single Sunday when we come here should be simply, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Daniel points us to him. Because Jesus is the one who ultimately lived as though God is in control. We see it in his life as he engaged in the fractured, sinful world around him. And we see it, here's where we see it most clearly, we see it at the cross. We see Jesus at the cross, not just living for the kingdom, but in his case, dying for the kingdom. Remember what Hebrews 12 says? That it was Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So it was for the joy that was set before him. So he knew what was coming. And so do you. It doesn't matter if Jesus comes back this afternoon or if he comes back 150 years from now. We know what's coming. So are we living like that's true? It was through his atoning work on our behalf, the sinless one becoming sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, Jesus died in my place. Jesus died in your place. Romans 6.23 says it clearly, that the wages of sin is death. And I know, many of you have heard that verse. I mean, I, in fact, that verse is so known, it's almost dangerous to quote it. Because, we're like, yeah, I know that one. That the wages of sin is death. So, okay, that's what we bring to the table. That's what you and I carry with us. 
That's our contribution to the story. It's like the worst sort of casserole ever brought to a church picnic, right? And we bring it and it's rotten and it's stinky. And you watch as it from the side, nobody eats any of it. Anybody ever been that one? There's like flies running away from it. That's what we bring to the table of redemptive history. We bring that nastiness. And nobody wants that. Death is, death is what we have earned by our lives. And that is a universal truth. We're all in that boat, every single one of us. Some people and some religions, they sort of picture a, a Savior standing on the shore. And they picture him sort of, sort of standing there kind of shouting at the people in the boat. Go, hey, man, if you do this, you'll get into the still water. So like tighten up the sail a little bit and turn left here, turn right there, and you'll find, you'll find still waters. That's how some people picture a Savior. Some picture a Savior just sort of making the storm still. Just kind of going, nope, nope, there's no storm. And we live with this sort of cosmic fairy tale idea that God is just going to step in and make everything around us so easy. But it's only in Jesus Christ that we see a Savior who, who doesn't do any of that. In Jesus Christ, we see a Savior who comes and gets in the boat with us. Only Christ comes and He takes the sin that we bring upon ourselves. And he takes that on Himself, receiving the wages, right? Taking our, what was due to us, He takes our wages of sin on Himself at the cross. Only a holy God could see us in the mess in our rebellion, and love us anyway. So, so how does the verse end, right? So the wages of sin is death, but what? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's who's calling to you today. That's who's holding out his hand to you today. That's who's walking with you today, in the storm or in the quiet, on the mountain or in the valley. It's the one who gave his life for you. That's this Jesus that Daniel's pointing us to, the one who, who didn't come and need to be told what was going to happen, but came and proclaimed it and then did it for you. As I was thinking about this passage this week, I, I, I think I just stumbled onto Psalm 27. We're planning to do Psalms for the summer. Maybe that's how I got there. Anyway, the beginning of Psalm 27 says this. is David, by the way. He's being chased by... Saul. People are literally trying to murder him. And he says this, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Right? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I've told you all this before. Uh, I, I show up here every Sunday terrified. Uh, I get in, out of my little truck back there and I walk around this building and I come in and I open the door. Then I come over and open that death trap door so that the uh, music people can come in through that way because they're very courageous. And I sit in my office and I just think about how weak and pathetic I am. <laughs> That's a daily, or at least weekly occurrence. Because I'm afraid of you. I'm, I'll make eye contact with everybody in the room. All of you, even the little ones. I'm terrified of you because at, the, at my core, I still think that what you think of me is what really matters. That's to my shame that I say that, but it's true. Again, today's just a confession Sunday. We're going to build a booth eventually. <laughs> it's true, though. I'm so terrified that you're going to walk out that guy doesn't make any sense. That guy's an idiot. I mean, these are, these are the thoughts that will be in my head. I need you to pray for, on your way to lunch today, pray for that guy, because he is. <sighs> the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is 
is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Y'all, I pray for you and I pray for me that that would be the proclamation of our hearts today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that the world is broken. We know that the world is stormy. We know that the seas are going to toss us, that the waves are going to, to try to drown us, that we're going to take our eyes off of you from time to time and we're going to sink beneath the water and praise God. You have your hand outstretched to lift us up out of that. Father, if you need to grab hold of us today, would you do that? Help us not to drift over into the lane. Help us not to grow complacent. Help us not to be spiritually apathetic. Lord, help us to run to you. You've given us your word, Lord. If somebody in here doesn't have a copy of it, I will give them one. Help us to find our presence with you. And if you choose to come back tomorrow, let us be found doing your will. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.